Okay, who watches 24? Okay, previously on Martin Luther. <laughs> I worked really harder on that than I did the entire lesson. That's hard to do, okay? Um, we've got a lot of lesson to get through. Let's, let's play catch up. Um, Martin Luther, he's born December 10th, 1483. To put it in our history context, that's nine years before Columbus sails for the New World. His parents were working class people. They wanted their son to grow up and be a lawyer. We don't think his parents were that bright. Um, at age 22, lightning strikes, which reminded me of the lesson when we sang the song this morning that God designs where every lightning bolt should hit. Uh, did you ever hear that line in our song we sang this morning? Okay, well, it hits right next to Martin Luther. Some believe it actually strikes dead his companion Alexis. Some people think it might have hit him. At any rate, it, it hits so close that it knocks him to the ground. He quits law school. He sells his textbooks and cuts a deal with the patron saint of miners. His father was a mine owner, mine worker. Cuts a deal with St. Anna that he will become a monk if uh, he lives through this ordeal. So he becomes an Augustinian monk and uh, has the hair thing cut right up there on top and at age 24 actually becomes a priest. Okay, He's ordained a priest. At age 29 he gets his doctorate in theology and at age 25, sorry those are out of order, he starts teaching Bible. Teaching Bible is a provocative thing. It was 1450 that Gutenberg invented the printing press. Took it a while to really get going, but books are finally starting to get out there a bit more. Luther has to go to the library to get a Bible to teach Bible because Bibles aren't just laying around everywhere for you to buy at Grapevine. So he doesn't have ready access to one, but he gets one out of the library. He starts reading it so he can teach it. He's teaching the Psalms. He's teaching Genesis. And then he starts teaching uh, uh, Romans and, and Galatians and Hebrews. And while he's teaching it and he's trying to understand what it means, one day it just grabs him by the throat because this is a man who's living a life of guilt. This is a man who spends six hours in confession when he just confessed the day before. And half of what he's confessing is what he'd forgotten to confess. But he's confessing things that are so outlandish that it's as small to us as I walked down the aisle to leave church and I walked past a, a, a piece of a little crumb of paper and I didn't pick it up, which means the janitor would have had to have. And I could have saved him that effort. God have mercy on me, I'm going to hell. Okay, This guy had a real sensitive, tender conscience. And so... He, he's teaching this, but as he teaches it, he learns that his salvation is not based upon what he's doing. It's based on what Jesus Christ has already done. Okay? It's not based on what he's doing each day. He doesn't earn his salvation. He doesn't earn or merit God's love. It's been given to him already. Historically, the price for his sin's been paid. The one way is, is the door has been opened. And so he proclaims as he's teaching, Jesus Christ, our God and Lord, died for our sins, was raised again for our justification. It's clear and certain that this faith alone justifies us. And that's what he teaches. Meanwhile, the church in that day was not teaching that. The church was teaching something that was much more uh, uh, appropriate for the fundraising that's going 
going on, not only to pay for some of the bishops of the area, but especially to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica into the masterpiece that it is today. So this fundraising is going on, and one of the ways the funds were raised was by selling indulgences, which means you put some money in the coffer and out will come your chance to, uh, to, to cut years of purgatory off uh, uh, the suffering of your dead relatives. Uh, there were also opportunities uh, that came from visiting relics and, and there were bones of apostles supposedly all over the place. Uh, 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 Santiago de Compostela supposedly is where the Apostle James was born and, 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 and Bob's favorite line out of the Luther movie is let's go to Europe where uh, 18 of the 12 Apostles are buried because there are so many people who claim to In other words, everybody's claiming, you know, that they've got one of the apostles. Let's go to Europe where 18 of the 12 apostles are buried. Okay, it's really funny. <laughs> Luther said it. He had a sense of humor. So um, Luther, the night before one of these uh, All Saints days on October 31st, 1517, nails to the doors of the Wittenberg Church 95 debate topics where he will challenge and debate these theories. Um, this, uh, uh, whoops, doesn't belong there, sorry, those should be gone. Uh, these 95 theses are nailed to the door, but in the process of nailing them, Martin's kind of offending the powers that be. Martin not only nails them to the door, but he mails them to the bishop, who forwards them on to Rome and says, do you realize this is a virus, this is a disease, this is going to affect how much money I raise for me and how much money I raise for you. In Rome, it's not deemed a cool thing, and so the Pope sends out the word, hey, Frederick, who rules over Germany at that point in time, would you go ahead and send Martin down to us? We've got a few things we'd like to talk to him about. Frederick the Wise refuses to turn Luther over. He says he's a German. I've got this deal about letting my people leave. you got something to say to him. You come up here and try him up here, but let's keep him in Germany. So the Pope sends up Cardinal Cahiton, who goes to in interrogate Luther. He goes for other reasons, too. He's trying to get the German help both monetarily and physically for a crusade to keep the Turks from invading Christendom. Uh, Cahitan goes. He asks Luther to, uh, uh, in essence, revoke or recant what Luther has said. Uh, uh, they argue for three days about purgatory. They argue about whether the Pope interprets Scripture. And uh, uh, Luther's finally told after three days, either you recant, you say revoco, you say I revoke, Italian, or, or face the consequences. Uh, Luther says, I'll face the consequences. So Cahiton goes back to Frederick and says, okay, you need now to send him to Rome. We got to take care of this uh, disease. Uh, uh, Frederick says, no. So what Rome sets up is a big debate. Cardinal Cahiton, he's taken out of the picture because there's such a national fervor going on in Germany as they try to get an identity as Germans that the Catholic Church decides, or the Pope decides, that, that uh, uh, there needs to be a German debating Luther to embarrass him. So they pick their best debater, a guy named John Eck. And Luther and his young protege, Philip Melanchthon, they go to debate John Eck. Eck was the guy, if you remember last week, who had the big, beefy voice, 
said more suited to be a butcher, kind of square, had great command of the scriptures, and loudly and, and vociferously debated for 18 days against Luther. And after 18 days, uh, the, the duke who's hosting the debate says, I want my house back, everybody leave. And so the debate is over. Luther leaves. The church is now trying to find some way to accost Luther and get him out of Germany. While the church is trying to do that, Luther's writings and what he has to say go international. They go to Switzerland. Henry VIII gets plugged into them up in England. They're, they're, they're spreading like wildfire. And Luther decides to take it up a notch. And so he does. In 1519 and 1520, Luther writes some incredibly profound, um, um, hugely important uh, uh, missives or books. We talked about his first, called The Sermon on Good Works. This was not only a book that was written and distributed and published, but it was also a sermon series that Luther gave in Wittenberg where he continued to preach. Luthenberg, Luther explained in Wittenberg that the first and the highest and the most precious of any good deed we can do is to have faith in Jesus Christ. If you have faith, then you, 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 can, you can have justification, you can have righteousness, you can be pleasing to God. But without faith... Even the best human deeds are rubbish and worthless. And, and the, the idea, though not this expression, but the idea that I used last week that I want to refresh in your mind as we continue with the story is, if you want to bear good fruit, if you want to be a tree that bears apples, I want to have a wonderful apple tree in my yard. If I want to have a wonderful apple tree, and what I have out there right now is an oak, do you think the wise thing for me to do is to go to Randall's and buy a case of apples, take them out to the oak tree, and carefully with scotch tape or thread, tie each one onto the tree? Would that give me an apple tree? No, it would not. It would give me an oak tree with apples tied on it. If you want a true good fruit apple tree, you've got to plant an apple tree. And Luther said, if you want righteous deeds before God, you don't just do them. You've got to have a tree of faith because the righteousness of God is one that comes to you by faith. And when you have God's righteousness by faith, then you can produce the good fruit and the good works. When you've got an apple tree that's in good sound shape, then it can make the apples. Just to do the works... For the sake of the works, without the faith in the tree, is useless. And so Luther does this. And then Luther goes a step further in this book, in this tract, in this sermon. He says, historically, what you've thought of is you've thought that there are sinful deeds and you've thought that there are mundane, everyday deeds like eating and sleeping and working. And then you've thought that there are the holy deeds like evangelism and praying. And fasting. And he says that's ridiculous. There aren't three categories of deeds sinful, normal, or everyday, and holy. He says there's only two categories of disease, uh, of deeds. Get rid of the mundane category. Realize that eating and sleeping and working are good deeds. When I was in, in college, there was a poem, as a professor was trying to make this point, I had a professor who was a big Luther fan, and he said, 
uh, he brought us a poem. And the poem was one that uh, uh, he made us memorize of, of sorts, at least in, in thought. The poem was basically one day, one very ordinary day, while I am eating, while I am sleeping, while I am changing diapers, my Lord will come back. How I wish that he had found me in prayer or telling someone about him. God have mercy on me. And Dr. Floyd, when he showed us this, he says, do you realize how profoundly messed up this person's view of God and the spirit life is? Because this person has bought into the idea that there are mundane, everyday things that we do that are not as holy and righteous as praying and sharing to the lost. And yet in God's plan, all of those deeds, when we do everything in the name of Christ, are all holy. There is a time to share to the lost. There is also a time to eat. And there is also a time to change diapers. And that is just as holy. The woman who is, is, or the man who's taking care of an infant child is doing no less holy a deed than the person who is out preaching the crusade to 70,000. And it's a very good point. It's a point that Martin Luther made. And the effect of this was to change the cultural idea and to say that the spiritual elite, the super monks, the super nuns, the spiritual elite, and the common man are on equal footing before God. Now, if that's not enough, Martin goes a step further and he writes a second book on the papacy at Rome. The papacy, excuse me, Dale. The papacy at Rome. And this is one where he says, as it's developed and as it is practiced, the papacy is an institution of man rather than scripture. Scripture sets up bishops for churches. And it's okay that the bishop of Rome might start other churches around it. Ed Young can be the pastor of Second Baptist and he can have Second Baptist Katie and he can have the movie theaters and he can still be the, the pastor of those. That's okay. But the idea and the encrustment that had gone with the Bishop of Rome becoming the father of the church, Luther says is an institution of man. It's taken it further. Now, this did not get a ringing endorsement in Rome. The Pope was not real pleased with these things, nor were his followers. So the Pope uh, issued a bull. That comes from the Latin word for seal because of the way this is sent out. We get bulletin from it. Okay, He issues a papal bull on June the 15th, 1520. You can still see copies of it or originals of it. Uh, this one is a picture out of the Rome uh, 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 Museum. But um, what he says is, Luther, once this is posted in your district, once you get notice of this bull, you've got 60 days to show up in Rome. And in the meantime, you need to recant, and at least these 42 of your books or your writings are to be burned. Now, that's a pretty severe thing. Showing up at Rome is not going to be a cool thing. It was John Huss, less than 100 years earlier, who got called to the Council of Constance because of his beliefs, which were very similar to Luther. If you read Luther, you can't read but a few pages without him quoting John Huss somewhere. And uh, it didn't work out well for John. Uh, he got burned at the stake. So this is not a really cool opportunity. This is sent, this, uh, uh, a bunch of copies are made, or a bunch of originals actually. 
and the bull is sent by two guys. This fellow named Aleander goes west, and uh, Eck, the old uh, beef voice butcher debater guy, goes east. And they all start looking for Luther, and they go up and they find the emperor who at the time for the what they still called the Holy Roman Empire, though it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, emperor Charles is up in the Netherlands, and, and, and they go up there, and, and all along the way they find the villages and the important places, and they have big book burnings. Well, now, while this is going on and this bull is coming to Luther, there's where we stopped last week. Luther is writing his most radical piece yet. It's entitled, Address to the German Nobility. And Luther, while he writes something that goes to the peasants, is writing something that actually goes to the Lord High Muckety Mucks, the powers that be, the German nobility, the people who rule the land, the people who collect the taxes, the people who provide for safety, the people who are to be acknowledged as the lords. And Luther writes to them and delivers a sermon. And it's not only in Latin, it's in German. So the common men and the uneducated understand it as well. And here's what he says in this incredibly provocative piece. He says, well, time out. For the last thousand years, over a thousand years in Europe, for over a thousand years, the church has ruled in at least three areas. The church has ruled in the area of morality. What's allowed and what's not. Now, not in the sense that, well, our churches today teach what's right and wrong. No, no, no. I'm talking about in society itself, the decisions of what's legal to do and what's not legal to do is not decided by a bunch of folks who are working for like $600 a month in Austin as our state representatives. Thank them very much for very little to no pay. It's not decided by congressmen and senators. What's right and wrong and allowed and not allowed is decided by the church. The church decides and enforces morality. Very different than our American government. Our American government's very post-Luther. Okay. Education is done by the church. There's not public schools. Kids don't go to school to learn to read and write unless they go to a church institution. They go to a monastery. It's basically the people in the church that can read and write for over a thousand years. There haven't been a lot of books. It's not something most people do. Most people were illiterate and had been for over a thousand years. They could not read or write. You can't go buy paper and pens. It just wasn't an easy thing to do at least until the printing press. But with the spread of the printing press, this uh, piece of fabric starts fraying among the edges. But for a thousand years, it had been the church who were the educators. For over a thousand years, it was the church that ran community life. It was the church that decided how the villages would be run. You say, well, what about the kings? The church controlled the kings. The way the church did this? Scripture. Nobody else really had Bibles. They were sparse. Most monasteries didn't... I mean, it's not like, hey, be a monk, get a Bible. They didn't have them either. Luther didn't have one. He had to go to the library and borrow it. At the monastic library. Until he finally got one. 
But, but, and that's after the printing press. Before the printing press, when they're all hand done, there just aren't a lot of them out there. So the church has scripture, and the church is the only ones who can read it. And the Pope is the one who has the ultimate authority to interpret it. And so, you, I mean, you want to know what's right and wrong, you got to listen to the people who can read. I mean, someone, if you don't have a Bible, and you can't read, and you're not allowed to interpret it, and you believe in your heart that there's a God in heaven, and God's authority on this earth tells you, you better do this or you're going to hell, it says it, it's the way it is, then you do it. And for a thousand years this has been going on. The church has the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, which people had been taught was the actual body and blood of Christ when the priest prays the, the words. And when the priest prays the words and it becomes the body of Christ, and he gives, the priest gives you the bread. Back then they would not let him take the wine lest someone should spill it and the blood of Christ be spilt unnecessarily. So only the priests get to drink the wine. When you take communion, all you get is the bread. But when you get it, God, you're actually taking part of Jesus' body into yours and there is a, a measure of eternal life that's coming to you. It's the way it was taught. The priest withholds it, you're going to hell. And so the, the, the church had control over all of this. And what this means is for the last thousand years in Europe, the priests, the clergy, was totally set apart from the village people. <laughs> I'm sorry, the people in the village. Excuse me. Luther's writing his most radical piece yet. Here's what Luther says in a piece that redraws the lines that have existed in society for Western civilization for over a thousand years. He redraws it and he says morality, education, community life, that's not the church's job. That's the job of government. Government should set up the laws about what's right and wrong. Government should take charge of educating people. And government controls our community and what's going on. So this idea that the clergy is separated from the village people is wrong. He says, it's not like there is such a thing in the New Testament as a special clergy in that way. And Luther established a doctrine that's a Protestant doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. And he says, we're going to redraw the line because anybody who believes in Jesus is a priest. You don't have to go through another priest to get to Jesus. You go through Jesus alone. Okay. I'm sorry, I can't handle that. There. Okay. I thought there's just something about having the village people in this picture that doesn't work. A priesthood of all believers. And if we're all priests and priestesses, if we're all priests, then that means we each get to interpret Scripture. Though within the lines of orthodoxy and councils. Then, if that's not enough, you know, that kind of disturbs the church a little bit. They're not real going to be real high on this book right now. Okay? Luther then starts contrasting the Pope to Jesus. Not in real good ways either. Luther says, for example, everybody's expected to kiss the foot of the Pope, which they were. 
Now they kissed his ring, but at the time they'd kiss his feet. He says, so we've got the Pope who wants his feet kissed. Meanwhile, you read about Jesus and he's washing the feet of his apostles. You've got the Pope who comes into town in a big parade wearing a golden suit of armor on the most majestic steed. In fact, an elephant even participates in some of the papal parades. And Jesus comes in on a donkey. You've got, and, and, and you, you, so this is the big contrast that he sets up. This is not really going to help him there in Rome either. Then, if that's not enough, the third part of this book, he says, we need to reform the church. We need to peel away from the church things like providing for the poor. I'm not sure Martin Luther would have been a Republican. I don't know. It's interesting to see how we kind of swing back on some of these things. We don't agree with Luther on everything, by the way. We being me. <laughs> I do think it's the church's obligation to provide for the poor. But Luther said, Luther was looking at a Christian government. He says, let the Christian government provide for the poor. The church should not have any control over government, Luther says. Let's peel away the control. Luther says if we'll peel away the control that the church is exercising on society and we strip it of its governing powers, we strip it of its wealth, then the church can better focus on the spiritual functions the church ought to be focused on. Well, now this goes out to the German nobility at a time when the church expects Germany to continue paying its taxes and tithes and everything else. And this goes out at the very same moment that Luther's emissaries are trying to track him down with the bull that says, you're in trouble, you better recant, and you better get to Rome and, and burn your books. I think they would have added this book to the 42 if they had known it was being written at the time. So while this is going out, you know what Luther's doing? He's writing another book. Before the bull ever gets him, this time he's writing one called... The Babylonian captivity of the church. That's a picture of an early edition of it. They did woodcuts for the front on these. The Babylonian captivity of the church. And this does to the church what his last one did for society. This just rips the bottom out of the church. This Catholic church, how many sacraments, Bob? Seven. He knew that before it went up because Kelly would have told him. How many of y'all knew that? Seven sacraments, Catholic Church. Okay, good. Seven sacraments. This is the child's guide to the seven sacraments. A sacrament, what is it? For you Protestants like me that grew up not understanding the word, this is a physical, external way that God's grace is actually dispensed to people. This is something physical that happens where God gives you some of His grace. This is a physical way that you come into contact with it. This is something physical that imparts grace or, or, or forgiveness to you from God. Okay? Here are the seven. We have baptism, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, confirmation, penance, confession, unction, which is uh, prayers, uh, last rites type thing, ordination, and marriage. Got them? Those are the seven uh, uh, um, sacraments. Now... Luther, he called this the Babylonian captivity of the church. 
taking the story from when Israel was conquered by uh, the Babylonian Empire and they carted Israel off to Babylon and, and Israel lives for a couple of generations in captivity. And Luther says what the Catholic Church has done is they have come into our lives and they have captured from us parts of our lives and carted them off. And it's wrong. And they're equivalent to the heathens. And we need to recapture from the church what is ours. He says now, whoa. That went weird. Okay, I've got uh, an emotional computer today. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me tell you what that says. Baptism was Now let me tell you what it should say. Luther does away with five of the seven sacraments. He keeps two. Baptism he keeps as a sacrament. Baptism is still a sacrament where your sins are actually forgiven by the Word of God through faith. Now Luther was an infant baptism type guy. Although if you haven't been baptized as an infant, he wants you to get baptized whenever you come to an awareness. But for Luther, there was still a sacrament here. It was still a time where through that physical act, God actually dispenses a forgiveness of sins. You say, well, how could a baby, an infant, have faith? Luther says, whoever's presenting him, that faith. Just as you'll find in the New Testament, he said that the faith of a dad gets Jairus his daughter is healed because of the faith of the father. If the faith of a parent can heal and, and, and before God. So Luther says that that's the way it works. And he keeps that sacrament. The Eucharist, Luther keeps that as a sacrament, but he changes it. He says it's not the priest who pronounces and brings God down into the elements. It's rather the faith of the receiver that takes those elements and makes them the body and blood of Christ. So that's the way he changes a bit what's going on, but that's still for Luther a sacrament. Penance, confessing to a priest, Luther says, -uh. it's not in the Bible. The Bible says to confess your sins one to another, not to a priest. And because Luther thought we're all priests if we're all believers, then when you confess your sins to someone, you're, 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 you're doing it. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to do penance. There's no special forgiveness that comes from confessing your sins to a priest. He doesn't have that power that anyone else doesn't have. Uh, confirmation, he says, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for someone who's been baptized as an infant when they reach a point of accountability to confirm that they have living, viable faith in Jesus, the Messiah... But that's not what imparts salvation to them. Marriage. He says, this is part of the stranglehold of the church. It's a song by Ted Nugent, but I couldn't figure out how to put it in here. The stranglehold part, not the marriage. Um, marriage, stranglehold of the church, but it doesn't impart grace. See, Luther was convinced the church has just got us in a stranglehold. They control everything. They control your baptism at birth. They control what your communion. They control your marriage. They control your confirmation. They control when you're sick. They control the, the idea that some are going to be ordained as priests. He says that's not some special dispensation from God where people's lives are changed when they're ordained. You don't find it in the Bible. Extreme unction, praying for the sick before they die, last rites. 
Luther says, you don't find that in the Bible. Well, you find it in James. But he says, I'm really not too sure about that book anyway. Luther was not a big James fan. In fact, he offered a reward one time to someone who could justify and explain how James is consistent with Paul on justification. And I wish so much I had been alive then because I could have gotten the reward, I think. <laughs> they are consistent, but that's another class in another day. Luther was not perfect. Um, now, October 10th, 1520, Luther's just written this book that basically urges Germany to dump the church. And then he writes another book that basically urges the Christians to dump the church. And then the bull comes, 15, October 10th, 1520, and it's posted. And uh, Luther doesn't go to Rome. In fact, Luther doesn't burn his own books. Luther gets with Philip Melanchthon, and uh, 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 they have their own little party. But before they do it, Luther writes a fifth book. You know, you got five fingers on your hand, might as well write five that summer. He's only written four, and he writes it with a personal letter to the Pope. It's a little more conciliatory, but it's really kind of offensive. I doubt the Pope ever read it, but if he did, he'd have been very shocked because Luther does not write the Pope like your holiness. Instead, he writes him like his buddy. He says, hey, I got some ideas for you. You may want to take these. This will help you out. And that's not the way you typically address the Pope. Now, I don't know about any of you with Catholic heritage, but have you ever written the Pope a letter just suggesting to him some things he ought to do to change his life and turn himself around and help the church out? Generally, those things aren't done now any more than they were then, but he does. And then, instead of burning his own books and taking himself to Rome, he and Philip Melanchthon in December, uh, the day after St. Nicholas Day, uh, have their own book burning. But they proceed to burn not only the Pope's books and the scholastic books of the Catholic Church, but just for good measure, Luther holds up the bull and throws it in the fire. Okay, this is bad. Okay, so the, the Catholic Church goes ballistic, uh, might be a way to say it, writes the emperor and says, okay, Frederick's dodging us on this thing. You got to get this guy and we got to get him disposed of. The emperor says, uh, I need the support of the Catholic Church and I'm a good Catholic fellow, so I think he's right. They're going to have a big mega meeting from January till the summer in Worms. They call it Worms, but it looks like Worms to me, and I'm from Lubbock, so it's Worms. Um, they're going to have this big mega meeting. Now, anything that's going to be a big meeting should not be called a diet, but that's what they call them, the diet. It's a general council assembly, and Luther gets called before the church at the Diet of Worms, which Dale Hearn says is what made him so sick. Nobody ever can survive on a diet of worms. The uh, Luther gets called before, and who's going to prosecute for the church but his old debate nemesis, John Eck, old beef throat. So, Luther's called before. The emperor himself is there. Luther is assured safe passage to and from. That's important because you remember John Huss, if you were here for that class, he got assured safe passage to but didn't get assured safe passage from, so he got there. Then they arrested him and burned him at the stake. Okay, Luther learned from that. He said, I want safe passage there and back, please. Okay. So he gets safe passage there and back assured. Luther shows up. It's in the afternoon session. The whole place is a buzz. 
Now, this is really an incredible picture. Oh, to have the magic way back time machine from uh, Bullwinkle and Rocky days. This would be so cool to go back with Mr. Peabody because the, the, the emperor, Charles, who's got the lineage that goes back a thousand years, is there with all of his accoutrements on his big throne with his train. The Catholic Church sends in their biggest, brightest, and best. All of the audience is filled. It's standing room only. And Luther, the humble little used-to-be monk, comes in, the miner's son, whose dad still ticked at him because he dropped out of law school, who's got all the personal problems that come with all of that, and he comes in in the midst of all of this pomp. And laid out on the table in front of him are his 42 writings. And X says to him, are these books yours? This is his trial, ladies and gentlemen. Luther says yes. X says, do you defend them or recant? Total silence. Everybody waiting to hear. Luther pauses. Luther says, Can I have a day to think about this? And I, the whole place just starts, and, and some of the people are disappointed. They just wanted Luther to be Luther. And some of the people are thinking, Holy smoke, he's going to recant. And other people are thinking, Well, of course he is. He's got the emperor there who's going to strike him dead if he doesn't. And everybody's abuzz. And, and, and the, 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 the Eck, the debater, says, No, you're a monk. You're a preacher. You're a doctor of theology. You wrote them. You have to be prepared for this. You know that's what this is about. Now answer the question. The emperor says, <clears throat> Heck walks over and the emperor says, eh, give him a day. You know, the emperor's sitting there thinking, I don't want a mob scene, you know. Let's just, maybe the guy recants and then we just burn him quietly and everything's okay. So, uh, X says, well, all right, you get a day. Tomorrow, 6 p.m., it's here. The next day, though the first day they said you couldn't squeeze in another person, the next day more people are there. All of the pressure, all of the pomp, everybody wondering, did Luther decide? Did, is he going to recant? You know, he, he's clearly hedging a bit. Uh, Luther is there, and uh, uh, he comes in the room. And you got all the people, and you've still got the king up there, the, the Holy Roman Emperor. And the question is asked again. Do you, are these yours? Yes. Do you defend them or recant? And Luther says, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Amen. Okay, the whole place just breaks up. Oh my goodness, this is going to be dilemma. And, and uh, the emperor, he declares Luther an outlaw, guilty of heresy, to be arrested and punished. But they can't arrest him right there because he has safe passage back. But as soon as he's out of there, he's dead. 
to be continued next week. Points for home. <laughs> Where do you stand? What do you value enough to die for? I mean, some of that's easy. I give my life for my family in a heartbeat. But if someone put my sermons, my lessons, my writings in front of me and said, recant. If someone says to you, stop your faith or stop sharing your faith or I'll have nothing to do with you. That's a tough call. Oh, we can say, no, it's not. Yeah, it is. Because your mind will start running through all these things of, I can rewrite them tomorrow. I just got to get out of here alive. God can't use me as a dead man. But I got to tell you, stand on God, because there is no firmer foundation. And if it does cost you your life or your job or your friends, what you have gained is the right place in God's plan and there's no money. That's, that's, that's the priceless part of the MasterCard commercial. Okay. Praise God for our Bibles. Let's support the Gideons. Praise God for our Bibles. Did you know, Ron, at, uh, in New Jersey, when they swear in the witnesses in that court where I was, the Bible they swear men on was placed there by the Gideons. Amen. You know, we've got an incredible thing. We have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one. If you can't afford one, tell one of us. We'll get you one and read it. They're not just coffee table books. Read it. Hebrews 10. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that was the holy of holies, that is his body, since we have a great priest not David Fleming, not Louis Miori, but Jesus Christ. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is what Martin Luther said. There's not someone between you and Jesus. Jesus wants a direct one-on-one -on -one relationship with each person. The beauty of what Jesus did when he came, he didn't merely come to, to, to be God and Lord. He didn't even merely come to be rabbi and teacher. Jesus came to be our friend. One of my favorite lessons I've ever gotten to teach, and I try to teach it periodically because I need to hear it, is that in the pages of the Bible we have so many expressions of God we have an awesome creator God who, who put the stars into place and called them by name. And sometimes I need that God in my life. We have an incredible teacher God who enlightens and inspires and guides in wisdom and discernment. And there are days when I need that God in my life. But we also have a dear friend a Jesus who eats with us, laughs with us, walks with us, sleeps with us, chums around with us. And there are times when I need that God in my life.
And God's got all these different ways He's revealed Himself to us. But we really miss out on the beauty of God if we don't realize that one way is directly just Him and us in the quietness of our hearts and nobody else between us. And that's the relationship with Him we can have. Would you pray with me? Our God, thank you for the lessons that we get from the way you've worked in history, the way you've moved in your church, the way you've awakened us to certain things at historical times and the way it awakens us today. And Lord, I'm struck as I read Martin Luther with so many things of his that, that I find just incredibly enlightening and so many areas where I think, wow, I don't agree with that. And I'm sure, Lord, in my own life, it's no different that there are some things where maybe I understand what you're doing and there are some things where I'm probably so far off. But I do know, Lord, that I love you and I do know that you have always been there for me and that's a testimony I share with everybody. And I thank you for that. And I pray with humility for the forgiveness that comes through the blood of your son and I pray it not only for me but for all of my friends here. And I ask that you would touch our lives and our hearts today in a very special way. Draw us near to you with no one in the middle. Through Jesus, we pray to you. Amen.